Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. This is Eating Crow with Pete Durand. Hey, everyone. Welcome to another thrilling episode of the Eating Crow podcast. I'm joined by Paul Carpenter. Paul, welcome. Good morning. Good morning. How are you? I'm doing great. So I usually try to set the stage. How did I meet Paul? Well, I actually reached out to Paul on LinkedIn because I was just drawn to his content. And this is one of those moments where you can't judge a book by his cover. <laughs> That's the face thing, maybe. I don't know. You saw so the Paul, face, you're like, hey. <laughs> like you said before we hit record, Paul, we both have a face for radio. Cheers to that. Without yeah. a doubt. Yeah. So Paul has a lot of depth to what he's doing. And, and, and I think once in a while you meet people who are, are doing their work with a much deeper understanding of why they're doing it. They're really there to help. Paul's sales training and leadership training, I think, is a manifestation of his desire to help people and organizations. So revenue, I think, is a byproduct. It's good. It's how he makes his living. But you're much more purpose-driven than I anticipated, Paul, which is why I asked you to be on the program. Well, thanks so much. Yeah, I, I would say we use a lot of principles in our world, and one of those is money never leads, it follows. Mm-hmm. And that that was a transformation for me. I used to chase the money. I used to think that was the mission. And then I had some pivots, some some definitive times in my world where things changed. And that money never leads became kind of a mantra for me that if that's your focus, you're going to lose people in the long run. You may get the money, but you're going to lose the people. Right. And it just changed changed a little bit of my world for me. So yeah. Well, in a sense, those are eating crow moments, right? That's uh, yeah. that's the that's the yeah. goal of the program. So we all have those different times in our life, and hopefully, they're not dramatic or tragic, right? They're learning points. Yeah. So it's interesting. You one of your earliest career moves was you were an on air personality for WKRQ. Yeah, Q102 in Cincinnati, Ohio. Yeah. So crazy. does anybody remember KRP Cincinnati, the show? <laughs> I, well, I get that a lot. If I ever, right. if ever comes out that I worked in radio, they're like, oh, Les Nessman, you know, <laughs> and Carbic or whatever the sales guy's name was, you know? It was, I mean, it, it's 70s, right? It's ancient. It's such an old show, but it was classic. You know, you did that for about a year. I have two questions. What got you into it? And then what made you leave it? Yeah. Great question. I I was in high school and we had a radio station at our high school as a training program. It was a hundred watt radio station. It broadcast about a mile and a half from the school itself. But, you know, I did like play-by-play football and play-by-play basketball. And I just, I was that, that guy, I was outgoing and I like to think funny. I don't know, but I I just kind of had that drive and I just really thought radio was cool. And that's really what pushed me to college to chase, you know, kind of that whole mindset. And I'll give my high school teacher, Kay Taylor, a lot of credit because she said, don't major in in communications, major in business, because if, if you know how to run a business, the rest will fall in place. Mine are in the, in the telecommunications area. And so I went to Ball State University and Dave Letterman had just put, I don't know, $10 million into a facility there. And so I got my four-year degree in, in business and marketing with a minor in telecommunications. And really when I did the Q102 stint, I was a senior in high school. And I, I still kind of look back and wonder how my parents ever let me do this because I worked overnights on the weekends. And so it wasn't a big gig, but it was a good right. gig and a lot of ego for a for 17, 18-year-old kid. But the reality of it is, is I was kind of driven by sales and money. I was I was that kid who always won the popcorn selling contest and the mm wrapping paper contests and all the school fundraiser type stuff. And one of the guys in radio said to me, if you're not going to be the morning show guy, you're not going to make any money on the air. And so I just realized, look, if I don't go to college now, I'm probably never going to go. And that's what took me out of Q102. Even though I think I probably would have had a lot of fun, it just maybe wouldn't have provided for me in the way I was hoping to or thought I would like to be. So I bailed. And the radio station wasn't happy because they were kind of starting to build a brand around my name. And but, at, you know, I was 18 years old and I look at it and say, it's okay. It, it all fell into place. But I stayed in radio after college, but I was on the sales side. Right, right. And we'll get to that in a second. It's, it's, uh, I faced a very similar, <laughs> and I say that with a smile on my face, decision when I went to college. I, I ran a Hardee's when I was in high school. Wow. And I, everybody should do a stint in retail. I recommend yes. it. Yes. I worked at Arby's. Yeah. <laughs> and the, the, the local regional manager offered me four stores to manage at 18 years old. Instead wow. of going to college. Yeah. And same thing. I thought, I got to go to school. 
but who knows? I mean, you know, had you gone into that and, and built a real business, I, I know a friend of mine who has uh, 13 McDonald's and he has three lake houses. So yeah. who knows? Yeah. yeah, totally agree. So you make this decision, you, you go to school, you go to Ball State, then you come out and you started, obviously, like you said, in a couple communications companies. And you have this title in your first job out of school at Saga Communications called Director of Non-Traditional Revenue. Yeah. What is non-traditional revenue? Yeah, it's a great question. We, we, so the radio station in general, it's, it's kind of revenue generation was all built around selling ads. We call them 60 second puffs of air Mm -hmm. where, you know, it would be an on air commercial for 30 or 60 seconds. And when I went there, there was a, a lady there that actually trained me who had worked in consumer goods manufacturing and understood that there was money that the CPGs companies like Procter and Gamble and Keebler and Nabisco and that they had funding that they could use locally. And they would do kind of a three-way deal with, with the grocery store. So they would pay for a promotion on my radio station. The grocery store would give up shelf space. And in return, the manufacturer would get, you know, ideal space in the, sure. in the department, in the store. And then the grocery store would get on air support. So we would do some, you know, NCAA final four giveaway or Super Bowl or whatever. And we just wrap all the costs in that, but it, they called it non-traditional revenue because it didn't really, it, there wasn't like a spot bank built into it. It was all promos. Okay. And so we were able to, to really put in revenue into the company that went straight to the bottom line because there was no asset attached to it. They were giving promos away. The radio station wanted to give away a Super Bowl trip anyway. So it actually reduced the expense of their, it was a really, really cool, I'll say combination. And it, it, I was on the front end of it in the whole radio industry. Like I went and spoke at the RAB, the radio association bureau, you know, broadcasters association. And it was just one of those scenarios where I was in the right place at the right time. And I think part of the creativity that I brought to the table allowed for this non-traditional revenue to grow and grow kind of quickly. So it put me in a good spot to kind of climb a ladder very quickly outside of, you know, because when they first started in radio sales, what they gave me was a phone book, which most of the people listening may not even know what that is. (laughs) And they said, good luck. And that was my sales training. And I'm like, well, what am I doing? They're like, go out and sell a blank of a bank of spots to a car dealer. And, you know, you can make $400 in sales a month, which I got, I think, 20% commission. So I'm driving all over town for 80 bucks a month per client. Well, these, these CPG deals were like 10 grand a piece. And so my mind went directly to the bottom line saying, Hey, wh- why would I chase a $400 deal when I can go sell a $10,000 deal and everybody's happy with me versus the car dealer who's going to just keep beating the crap out of me. Now I will say it taught me how to sell and how to become a little bit rejection proof because that environment is not a fun environment to sell in. And if you can sell that, you can sell anything on the planet. I was pretty convinced. So when you went from Saga to Clear Channel, was the concept of non-traditional revenue at Clear Channel or did you bring this concept to them? No, they had heard about some of the deals that I had Uh, done and uh, they had decided they wanted to start that on the FM side. So Saga or Clear Channel had AM. It was actually J-Core Broadcasting at that time. They had FM and AM and they were kind of separate. The AM had all the sports. So they had the Bengals and the Reds and but the FM had nothing. And so what we did there is we got in the concert business wow. and started doing outdoor festivals. And I think we were doing 17 events a year and developed about two and a half million dollars in non-traditional revenue that was not spot related. And and so, like I said, it, it put me in a pretty good light very quickly sure. in that environment because it's, you know, the radio business was kind of like a, a fraternity. It, you know, they're just, you, you know, people would call each other from other cities and steal ideas from each other and work together and, it put me in a good spot that where, where I left was I got screwed on some commission. Mm. I put together a $2 million project with our helicopter. And when they realized they were going to have to pay me about $200,000 in commission, <laughs> they got a little upset about that. And they called me in and said, Hey, we're not going to pay you that, but we are going to be fair. And I'm very principally oriented. And I just kind of said, you know, look, if, if you're not going to honor the contract that I have with you, then, then I'm, I'm out. So three and a half years out of that scenario, I canned the promotion. I called the the company I was pitching it to and and bailed out on the deal and you know and I left about two weeks after that. And so it was a bad thing for me, but it was a good time to get out of the business. The business had changed because all the radio stations had gone public, and that's why they couldn't pay me that way. And I get it looking back. I mean, it's big business, and, and but I still don't understand when people cut the commission of of a top salesperson who's generating a lot of revenue. It's just cutting your nose to spite your face, and so. 
that was an unfortunate chapter, but I'm thankful because it put me in a whole different playground. Well, I mean, the lessons you learned, first of all, creating revenue out of nothing, right? That's, <laughs> Good, that's yeah. fantastic. And you learned a valuable leadership lesson. Yeah. You brought a $2 million to the table, deal to the table. And, and this is what I understand about C-level leadership and sales leadership. That $2 million wasn't there before. Right. It was brand new revenue. Yeah. And you should be thrilled to pay that commission. Well, that's why I said, he, he said, well, it's too much commission to pay. I said, but you're, but you're getting the $2 million. Yeah. Like, yeah. I, I don't get it. He's like, well, we don't want you to become fat. And I'm like, well, fat's relative, man. I'm not here for the people. I'm here for the money. Yeah. And, and I will say at that point in my life, I still was driven, I would say pretty solely by the money. Like I even feel like I, there, there was a negative piece of that about me. Yeah. And you talked about that before we started recording and we're going to drill into that a little bit. You know, the money never leads. No. You know, it's interesting. We could look back and say, what if they had paid you? Right. Right. Where would you, where would have, where would that have taken you? Perhaps. perhaps yeah. <laughs> perhaps that would have been a little bit of the dab of the first t- touch of cocaine, right? That you got on even more hooked, right? You're oh, yeah. right. Yeah. So the Lord works in mysterious ways yeah, when they, he, he closes the door and says, Paul, this is kind of where I want to take you. Yep. Right? You don't yep. know it at the time. So you went to Mobile Track, but then in, in 2001, February 2001, by the way, a lot of young people don't understand, started business in 2001. Good luck, right? <laughs> right. Good months, Valentine's like, Day. Two, it was seven, Valentine's Day. <laughs> seven months later, things changed for everybody that just started a business. But I did. So you actually created this thing called the NTR Group, which is a non-traditional revenue group. Yeah, I couldn't let go of this ability that I felt like I had. Like, I didn't know what I wanted to do, but I knew I didn't want to go back and work for another company. The dot-com gave me the confidence to go out and start something, even though we lost our shorts and took pay cuts. And it was three years of of a long, but a great education, better than college, better than anything I could have asked for. I met some really, really talented people. And I can literally remember the morning that that I, quote unquote, got let go. They couldn't pay their bills. There was a technological glitch. So I got fired. And uh, it was the first job I'd ever been fired from. And I remember walking out, it was Valentine's Day. And I, my wife was sitting at the the table having breakfast with the kids. And I, I said, hey, uh, happy Valentine's Day. I just got fired. So and she looked at me and she said, well, I guess we're not going out for dinner. And I said, probably not a good idea. We didn't have a lot of money in the bank. I was not very good managing money at the time. And sure, I was just good at making it, making it and spending it. We were always living kind of you know beyond our means because I felt like, oh, I can just go make more money. And I kind of said, she said, well, what are you going to do? And I said, I don't know. And she said, well, I think you should start your business. And I'm like, wait, whoa, whoa, what? And I'll give her the credit. She, yeah. She's the one who kind of pushed me off the ship and said, you'll learn to swim on the way down. And there were two things she said to me. She said, one, she said, look, I don't want any regrets in our marriage. The, like you keep talking about having your own business. Now, now's the time. I'm like, well, we're going to probably lose the house. We may get sued. She's like, I don't care. We got each other. And then the foundational piece that I just, you know, I can't ever let go of this is she said, our faith is in the provider, not the provision. Wow. And, and what she was saying to me is we're going to trust God. And if he's calling us to this, then we're going to go and we're going to trust him. And there's no one piece of business or one job that we put our faith in ever. Sure. There's not one person, not business, not money, not bank account, not check, not vehicle, nothing. She said, God's our, is, is the faithful one. He, he's the provider. And so, and she, I literally turned around, walked back in my room and started making phone calls. And sure. within probably two days, I had my first quote unquote NTR deal, non-traditional deal. Now, granted, it was with a family member, distant family member on the West Coast. But what I began to see is I could go make make something happen. And it was just a a great opportunity to build confidence very, very quickly. And I'm a little wired like that. I'm a little bit like, you're not going to keep me down. The underdog's going to find a way. And so, yeah, that day was instrumental in where I'm at today. You know, we talk about eating crow moments, right? And I think the watershed moment for you is the fact that you you realized a lot of things on, on Valentine's Day 2001, <laughs> right? When you're an employee, you have very little control over your destiny. Correct. Number two, you, you had this wake-up call about making money versus you know making versus managing money, right? You had this kind of, I, I need to oh, think yeah. that process. Yeah. But for me, I have identified three or four, many, there's many, but three or four standout moments in, in, in my marriage where I looked at my wife and I'm like, where did that come from? Where did that moment of strength and inspiration lifting me up when I needed it come from? Yeah. And it was, it was a similar situation about, you know, job change, move, whatever. But the fact that your wife looked at you and said, 
I know you just told me we might lose the house, but <laughs> I mean, yeah. that, that, that's not something many wives would take lightly. No, not, we had three kids and one on the way. Yeah. I mean, that is, oh, no, actually we had just had our fourth kid in um, May of 2000. That is staggering. And, and I'm a fellow entrepreneur. So I've started a couple of companies and there have been moments where we couldn't pay the bills. Right. And, oh, yeah. and, and, and many of them, and people don't recognize the darker side of entrepreneurship and starting a business and not having guaranteed paycheck coming in and insurance, right? So not only did you lose income, but now you have an additional expense of paying for your own insurance. So there's a, oh, yeah. it's a pretty big swing. Yeah. So you're still running this business, but what's interesting, and, and we talked about this before we started recording, is you also have an, another company called Zone Insights and yeah. your personal brand is starting to build. Yeah. So My kids get credit for that. Yeah. So walk yeah. us through what your son and his business partner have helped you kind of, you know, maybe be a little more comfortable getting out there with your own brand. And how has that evolved? Well, there's a couple of things with my training. You know, I, I'm, I'm kind of this one man show, if you will. What I found out with training is people fall in love with their trainer. And so when you try to duplicate that or, or put somebody else in, in your place, it doesn't typically go well. And so I had to kind of make this decision that I really don't have a business. I've got a really nice paycheck. I've got a really good self-employed. I show up, get paid, go home. Mm -hmm. But if I'm not on the platform, I'm not actually, you know, making any money. And, and so my, I have four kids, boy, girl, boy, girl. So my third child, who's my second son, Isaac, he and his buddy from high school started a social media marketing company for football player for professional athletes, but mostly NFL guys. They'd gotten hooked up with Joe Mixon in Cincinnati and a couple other players. And, and so they started doing this social media marketing. And, and at that time, I'm like on the fringe. I invested a little bit of money in, into their business to kind of get them off the ground. And, and then they started looking at me and they're like, why don't you do this with your training? And I'm like, nah, nobody. First of all, I was afraid people would steal my training. And that was a little bit of a, I don't know, just a mindset of if they can get it for free, they're not going to need me. And sure. boy, was I 100% wrong about that. And they were telling me, but they were like 19, 20, 21 years old. And I'm sitting there. You know, they're in college and they're doing this side business. And I mean, their business was doing over a hundred grand a year. And I'm like, okay, maybe they know what they're talking about. Maybe sure. they're, you know, doing, doing okay. And all of a sudden I'm like, well, what if I were to, to start doing this? And so, you know, my son's business partner, Josh is really kind of the, the SEO guy. And he just said to me, he said, look, why don't, what would it take to get you to test this? And I said, I would want a, a full bucket of content built before I ever start posting. Cause my fear was I'm not going to finish. Like sure. I'll start it and I'll get bored with it or I'll get distracted or I'll start another company or, you know, and so he, you know, really engaged with me with this idea of pillar content. We'll record lots and lots of content and we'll just cut it up into lots and lots of slices. And, and so we've done that. And, and COVID was a great excuse for that because when COVID hit, you know, live training went to zero. Right. And so everything for me had to go on to zoom and, and online. And so I had to change my pricing model and my the delivery model. And, but I, I'll give a handful of my clients credit, a couple of more essential businesses. And they were like, we are not cutting the training. The training is changing our world. It's making a difference. And and now drama's at an all time high for the management side. And then sales were critical because, you know, everything stopped. Yeah. And so my business actually grew pretty dramatically over the last three years because of, of all of that. And because I got comfortable believing that training could work virtually or online or even in a recorded format. And so I started creating this portal where I'd have record, like we have a portal for all of our clients that has over a hundred pieces of recorded content in it sure. where they can go back and reference and and we just charge a subscription for it. And in a million years, I wouldn't have thought that that was going to work. And so, you know, about, I don't know, three months, two months ago, Josh kind of convinced me to go ahead and start putting it on TikTok and Instagram and LinkedIn. And it's been a fun little experiment and it seems to be working. We've actually, we're not looking for it. We're not selling anything. We're just giving. We're just giving and and trying to provide solid principle-based content that can impact you wherever you're at and, and really three core areas, one in leadership or management, two in sales we call serve and three is really in life because the application of our, our leadership training has just an unbelievable piece for families and we do it training at churches and, and a lot of give back to nonprofits, which is really the mission side of my world. So it's just been a lot of fun. So the social media piece is new and we have no intention of stopping. We have a scheduled recording every week and, and we take that and we 
cut it up and start placing it where it makes sense. And like you, I'm coming out of the gym or I'm, I'm coming on a walk and I'm, I'm just going to start recording. I'm realizing yeah. it doesn't have to be perfect. doesn't have to be edited exactly the same. There can be a bird in the background or my dog starts barking yeah. or any of that. That's just, people love the fact that it's real life. They, you know, yeah. there's a whole just different shift there. So it's been a lot of fun. Yeah. I think the big buzz around artificial intelligence is going to, is going to distinguish and place higher value on authentic content. Sure. Right. And and people want to see you in your natural habitat too, Paul. The pre-recorded, highly edited, high production stuff has a place. Yeah. But people re- they tend to resonate deeper with stuff that's off the cuff out in the world that they're in. Right. They, you know, my dog just barked behind me. I had a bad day. <laughs> I just skipped my workout. Oh, there's Paul. He's relating to the same thing. Oh, I'm right. not I'm not alone. Right. right. When you think about and there's some important points in, in what you just said that are necessary for leaders and entrepreneurs who are our primary audience to think about. You have two different companies, you have several different training modules, but people have a hard time remembering the names of those companies, but they remember <laughs> your name. Right. So this is what your son and his buddy are trying to convince you to. So how how have you pushed past, and you and I both have healthy egos, but that the concept of promoting <laughs> our own name yeah. You're you're by the way, you're far more comfortable than I am yet at it. So how did you how did you resonate with that? Well, I I think I probably wired, I mean, you know, everything we teach is built in human dynamics. And okay. so when you look at personality styles and how I'm wired, I'm actually wired for the job I'm doing. So I'm wired to be in front of the camera, I'm wired to be on the stage. There's just a piece of me that gets fed sure. by that. We call it the beast. You know, you're kind of feeding the beast in that. So I think that part was always there. I, I think, you know, there's also a fear of failure that I think most people have in life in general. And it's like, once you kind of get past that, and I don't know that it's an easy step. I mean, I, I think f- when when you see your own kid believing in you more than you believe in yourself, yeah. that's when it's a little bit of a wake up. You're like, well, what, how, what is this 20 year old or he's now 24 years old? What is he seeing in me that I'm missing? Mm-hmm. And then I had my, I've got another son who's a musician and lives in Nashville and he's chasing his music dream and he's got his own little solo career and, and he's putting stuff out like nobody's business. He's putting music out. He's doing content. Sure. I mean, he, he also kind of hit me up with, Hey dad, I don't think you realize how valuable your stuff. I mean, you know, so when you've got your kids are telling you, and frankly, they got to see the value of the training because we started applying it at our home. And it changed my relationship with my kids and my, my wife. I think my, my, my marriage was on a road to divorce and I really didn't have a great relationship with my kids. This was probably 10 years ago. Mm-hmm. And we had kind of this pivot moment. You know, I can share it if you want it, but yeah, you know, we just had this situation in our, our family where, you know, I engaged in an, in a conversation. I, I interrupted a conversation with my son and my wife where I thought there was a lot of disrespect taking place. And, you know, my personality doesn't lend well to disrespect. And, and so I, I got involved, which, you know, rescuers become victims. And, sure. and I, I did become the victim in that, you know, the old Cartman's triangle thing. And what happened was I, I kind of went through this in, environment with him and in, in this, you know, situation and it did not end well. My wife was mad at me. My son was mad at me. The other kids are like, what's going on? Everybody's yelling at each other. Doors are getting slammed, which was kind of a typical day in our kitchen. Like this was not like a one-off event. This was our life. And I picked up the phone at the time I had a business partner and John said to me, he's like, Hey, what's going on, man? I'm like, dude, what do you freaking need? And I'm like crushing him now. Right. And he's like, Hey man, what's happening? What, what's up with you? And I said, Oh, I just got in this big fight with my wife and my kid. And he's like, well, did you color it up? Which is the term we use in our training to assess a situation and get you unemotionally involved. And I'm like, looking at him like, what the blank are you yeah. talking about color it up like no i didn't color it up you know and he's like well let's walk through it and I, i'm like i gotta go and i hung up on him because i'm like i don't need you to teach me a lesson right now right but man i'll give god and john the credit that that was like day one of oh oh my gosh i'm teaching something i'm not even using myself wow. and i took a step back and i always say you know, God gives us time to fester a little bit. And three days went by and my son came home, had the, I was like, it was like Groundhog's Day, same situation took place where he got involved with my wife, was disrespectful. And I took the approach we teach this, we call it a lead model of communication and it, it, it's five steps. And 
And I took that approach with him and I brought him in my office and he was expecting another beat down. He was expecting sure. me to crush him. And I literally applied the process that we teach that gets you out of the emotion and the drama and allows you to have an, an adult conversation. And I did that and he saw it and we embraced it and he's like, dad, thanks so much. And he's giving me a hug. And I'm like, wait a minute, this, this stuff works. What the heck? <laughs> and he walks out and he apologizes to my wife and my wife walks in my office. And she's like, what did you say to him? And I'm like, what, what, what do you mean? She's like, did you threaten him? I'm like, no, I didn't threaten him. Here's what happened. For the first time in 15 years, I treated that kid like a leader instead of a piece of crap. Yeah. And all of a sudden, my eyes were opened. And it was the true, you know, I call it a second chance. Maybe not everybody gets second chance, but by the grace of God, I got a second chance. Yeah. And I started applying what I was teaching in the moment. And it allowed all the escalation and the drama to diminish. It didn't go away. It's never going to go away. Sure. But it allowed us to begin to step back and assess the situation before we start engaging and it allows us to then re respond instead of react. And when I started applying that, because my personality is off the rail direct, I'm a hundred percent red in my personality profile. So I, I'm pretty quick to bite first and then ask questions later, maybe, you know, right. and so my kids and my wife began to see a remarkable I'm going to say change, which I don't believe people change much or often, but I do believe that was a, a change in my, my style and my life and the way that I began to address situations and circumstances. And I think I won my wife back and my kids back in a way that I, I can't ever, you know, this is where my training went to a whole new level because I started sharing this story in the mm -hmm. training and I literally would have, you know, adults in my class in tears. Yeah. Because it's their kitchen and they, they don't feel like they have any hope. They're like, this is never going to work with my spouse. This is never going to work with my kids. My kids hate me. Yeah. I was doing a training for the Ohio Plumbing, Heating, and Cooling Association. There's 400 plumbers in the room. And I, I did the, I was the keynote for the lunch keynote or whatever. And then I did a breakout session and they had the room set up for the breakout for like a hundred people out of the 400. And, and literally I think about 380 came to the breakout session which was a stroke to my ego, but I will say it was amazing for me to continue the opportunity to sure. have this conversation. And at the end of the training, this plumber, he's about six, seven, probably three fifty and change, you know, classic plumber look, you know, pants halfway down. And sure. he comes up to me, he's just literally weeping. And he said, I, I wish I would have known this 10 years ago, but I, I've lost my relationship with my kids. They're grown, they're gone. They want nothing to do with me. And and I just looked at him. I said, well, can I ask you a question? He said, yeah. I said, are they dead? And he's like, no. And I said, well, it's not too late. Right. I said, look, leadership can start at any point in time. I said, yeah. Do you, do you have some ground to gain? Do you have some forgiveness to get? Yeah. But what you can do is own it. Yeah. See, leadership starts taking personal responsibility. And I, he said, well, what would you suggest? I said, I suggest you call him and own the fact that you weren't a good leader as a dad. And you blew it a lot. And you know what? That's okay. But take responsibility. That, that's yeah. the starting point. So anyway, it's just been a phenomenal missional transition for me over these last 10 years. I went and rewrote the training in a way that became fifth grade simple, allow me to inject these family stories into the business world, which I think is, is largely appealing to people because it's just real. Yeah. And they're all dealing, we're all dealing with the same trash. I always tell people, you know, you think your world is so different. Your fights with your wife are so different. They're not. It's the same crap, different address. Yeah, And I just, anyway, I could go on for hours, man. I, ho I hope I'm not derailing you, but I just wanted to kind of just tell you that that's my heartbeat for what I'm doing. You didn't derail it. You just hit. In fact, this is, <laughs> this, we're in the fifties of episodes of eating crow, right? And the whole yeah. purpose of the program is for people to share moments in their life where they just had to make a fundamental shift in their own thinking and behavior to get through to the other side. That's what it tastes awful. It's difficult. <laughs> humble pie. It is, it is. Yeah. It's a big, it's a big dose of humble pie. And I'll share this briefly because to your point, all of us have this kitchen. All of us have this, this environment at some point in their life. And you have four kids. I have three kids. All three of my kids are very different. Yeah. And I have a hot, I have two hot buttons, dishonesty and laziness. You know, you can, you can tie disrespect in there too, right? But well, that's the underlying piece for both of those, correct. actually. Absolutely right. If you disrespect somebody, you're dishonest or you're lazy. I just don't resonate with those two. I just don't. They just, they're triggers for me. Yep. yep. And uh, my, instant road rage. Yeah. And, and my oldest son, 
he wasn't disrespecting my wife. He kind of gave me, and this was at a point in time where I was in the middle of my startup. Money was tight. I was stressed. I probably was wound as tight as you possibly could get. <laughs> my wife is just trying to keep this shit together. She's got two sick parents. She's carrying a huge burden. And my son is having a difficult time at school. He communicates. He learns differently. He's an incredible young man, very talented. But his learning methodology and listening was very different than mine. And I, it, hadn't, sure. it hadn't clicked with me yet. Right. My oldest daughter, very similar to me. My youngest son, a dangerous combination of my wife and I. So he just kind of, he just kind of figured out how to maneuver in it. Yeah. But my son lipped off to me. Right. And I lost it. Yeah. And my wife and my son are watching me completely lose it. Yeah. My son loses it. Later that night, I look at my wife, and, and I'm emotionally wrecked, Paul. Yeah. I knew how bad that went. Yeah. And I looked at my wife, and I said, he's 14. He doesn't have a communication style. I do. Hmm. And I can't reach him this way. I am going to lose my son. And by the way, up until this point, I was not on rocky ground. We had a great marriage, great, great relationship with my kids. But that moment was... Like you said, there were micro moments before that. Sure. This was the culmination. And to your point, I changed the way I communicated with him. That's awesome. I ended up asking him questions and talking with him and letting him share his feelings. And he he learned to open up and you know, it changed our relationship. Yeah. And it changed my relationship with my wife and my kids. And to your point, if others are listening to this, it's okay to recognize that it's not perfect. Right. I think for, for your style and mine, because we're probably wired very similarly, mm-hmm. that, that red personality is what is driven by respect. And I think the key is our nature, and I don't know you very well, certainly, but sure. just from what you've said, our nature is actually to see things as a liability. Yeah, They're just in your way. Mm-hmm. And when they are, you're going to move them. That's just how we roll. And so the the shift, the wake up for that style is is learning how to see your people as leaders instead of liabilities. And right. so I use this line in the training. I say, hey, when you see your people as a piece of trash, don't be shocked that they act like a piece of trash. Right. And I remember one of my kids saying to me point blank, he's like, look, if I'm never going to please you, I need you to understand I will stop trying. Yeah. Wow. And that was huge. He was 16 years old and he's like, I wow. just feel like your bar is so high. And every time I reach it, you just jack it up. Wow. And I just need you to know I'm going to stop trying. And when I do, it's going to be hard for both of us. Your 16 year old said I, this to you? My 16 year old said that to me. Is he, yeah, is he I, looking for a job? Because I'd love to hire him. <laughs> That's emotional intelligence in the next level right there. I will say two things about how this training works in, in families. It allows you as a family, so we're the carpenters, it allows you to build a a common language and a definition of what it looks like to be a leader as a carpenter, just like it would be if you worked for a business as the XYBZ business. And we, from that moment where that, you know, Timmy story took place and that kind of pivot began, certainly wasn't perfect and it wasn't 100% swinging the opposite direction. But what it did for us is allowed us to begin having conversations instead of telling our kids what they needed to do, mm-hmm. what we began to do. And this works really well in a company, by the way. What we, we began to tell them is this is what it looks like to be a leader. And we use the phrase with leadership comes privilege without it comes restriction. Mm-hmm. So when you choose to lead, I can trust you. When you choose to lead in the house and I can trust you here, I can trust you out there. But if I can't trust you in here, you're not going out there. And so what it did is it allowed us to let our kids begin to shift into making good decisions or bad ones on their own versus telling them what to do at every moment. Because the disconnect with that is the minute they leave and you're not there to whisper the guidance in their ear. You don't know what's going to happen. You don't know what choice they're going to make. But if you train them to think like a leader because they understand what leadership defined is, they can make that choice and they can be managed to that. And that's where the emotion goes down because there's no need to get angry anymore. So, So if you define for your kid, this is what it looks like to be productive versus lazy. And with productivity comes privileges, with laziness comes restrictions. Now you get to choose, but it's because we're on common ground, or we call it the same page. Now we have common ground and there is no argument yeah. because we've made an agreement. And so, it, dude, it's life-changing. It is so powerful. It's, it's just 
And that's where I think some of that wisdom from a 16 year old came because he was applying the principles against his old man. (laughs) It's interesting. I saw, I saw a, and there's two things I want to point out there. When you show them what leadership looks like, it's not necessarily a course or a lecture at that point in a home. It wasn't a lecture. It's by example. Well, it was buy-in. We actually let them touch it. Correct. Right. We asked them to define what it would look like to be a leader at 16 with girls, with dating, with, with curfews, with parties, with driving, and see, once they touch it, and I, my, sometimes my kids were harder on themselves than, than, I, than we would have. Yeah. yeah. And it was, it was all, but because they touched it, they owned it. Yeah. And this is what so many parents forget or right. is parenting is hard. Right? Oh, it's the hardest gig on the planet. It, Second to marriage. It, it, it is. And it, it requires intention, engagement, patience, love, all those things. It, it's hard when you come home after a long day. Both of you have worked a long day. You come home. The energy to engage with your children in a thoughtful manner is so hard, yeah. but it's but it creates richness, right? If you yeah. if you're a parent when they're younger and through the tough times, then you build children you can have a friendship with when they're older, and that's so yeah. rewarding. I well, I saw true. I saw I'm trying to think where I saw this video the other day. This woman posted a video and she said, "People have asked me why I have high integrity and work ethic." And she goes, I'll show you why. And she had two videos of her dad where he didn't even know he was filming her. She was filming him. One, he was outside shoveling snow off the deck at six o'clock in the morning. So his wife could take the dog out. Right. Right. No one else knew he was doing it. He just did it. And the other one is after that, he cleaned the entire kitchen after they had a family holiday party the night before. So, and then prepared a cup of a pot of coffee for his wife in, cause he knows she likes this certain type of coffee. No one knows yeah. he's doing it, but she observed those things. Yeah. Right. So it was leadership. It was work ethic. It was servitude. It was integrity and it was humbleness, right? You didn't ask for any of this. Right. So when you, when, if you would ask this girl, how do you define leadership? My guess is she would have four good examples for you. Sure. Yeah. And I think when you have that definition, it's the same thing when we go into organizations and they're like, how do we change the culture? I said, well, if I were to have 10 of your employees come into a room and I ask them to define what it looked like to be a leader at XYZ company, would those match up? Mm. And they inevitably say no. And I say, okay, until you get those to match, that that's where culture will change. Because what happens is once you're on the same page with what is expected, right. then you manage to that detail and that process, the results and the path to get there. Sure. What happens is quickly imposters will glow in the dark. Right. And I will tell them there's probably 10, 12% of your organization that are collecting a check, but they're not actually working. Oh, yeah. And they're not working because nobody knows what they're really supposed to be doing, including them. Yeah. And until that clarity comes, don't expect your culture to change. But once it comes, you can weed out the people who will not buy into the culture and you can attract people who are desperate for that culture. Right. But it all starts with making sure that we understand what it looks like to lead in this organization. And until there, you know, I tell people, throw out your freaking mission statement, create a model of leadership and a path to get there and then manage to that. You'll change your culture within 30, 60, 90 days. Yeah. And and where I think where a lot of companies where they react to is they start incorporating more restrictions, more useless activities like OKRs, KPRs, all these other things where they just create artificial examples of leadership, right? right? A dashboard isn't leadership. A dashboard is a measurement of an outcome. Well, the principle is you can't manage results. And I would say that is one of the critical areas that most people fail in. They set a goal and they're trying to manage to the goal. What you have to manage is the prescription, or we call it the path to leadership, the path to get to that result. But most people are not on common ground or same page in the path area. So therefore, they're like, I don't care how you get there. Just meet me in Miami. Well, when your people don't show up and the deadline is there, they're out of their minds. And that's where personality styles fly in. Yeah. You know, and so what happens is when you're not managing the the path by which you get the result, A, you don't really know where you're failing. You don't know where to train. People are like, well, how do you know what training to do? We need a process. Yeah. So if you don't have a process for getting 
from where you are to where you want to be, there's no way to know what kind of training we need. So they just start throwing things at the wall yeah. like KPIs and SOPs and, you know, all of the, uh, that you're getting written up, you're, yeah. you know, you're on a performance improvement plan, all of that. And so it's, it, you know, back 30, 40 years ago, I think a lot of that work, that management by authority, yeah. you know, back when my dad was working and his boss said jump, my dad was like, well, how high? Yeah. Okay. So, but that doesn't work anymore. In today's economy, these kids, they're not, they're not, Nope. They're not open to authority very easily. No. And so really giving them clear path gives them a lot of control and a lot of influence and opportunity for them to, to kind of drive their own world, which is, by the way, where leadership starts, taking personal responsibility for the outcome of your, your situation. Yeah. And so it, it's just – it's, you know, we got work to do. There's a lot of, this country's a mess. <laughs> this country's a mess. And we, and I kind of want to close with a, with a specific example or a topic so that leaders who walk away here and they're leading even large, small, mid-sized organizations, how they can think of engaging with you and, and your teams to, to solve some problems. So we talked about healthcare, your wife's a nurse, right? Yep. And how, how mixed up this world is in healthcare, right? It is a marketplace with so such a lack of, of supply when it comes to nurses and doctors. Yet, yeah. these organizations are not treating these precious resources with respect or fair compensation, uh, solid work environments. It's, it's such a big problem. If you were to sit down with the leaders of a hospital or a large you know, healthcare network, what are the first three or four things you would say to them? Number one, help them understand there is a problem, Right. Number two, to help them realize there is a solution. And number three, to kind of walk them down the path towards that solution. Well, a simple question you can start with if you're listening to this and you're running an organization is ask yourself on a one to 10 scale, no sevens allowed, okay. what you believe the culture of your building is. 10 is it's perfect nirvana. It's It couldn't get any better. It's heaven on earth. Right. One is, you know, hell in a handbasket and chaos and, right. you know, gnashing teeth, et cetera. No sevens allowed. Okay. Where would you say you are? And if you're if you're anything below a seven, six, five, four, three, two, or one, there's a real good opportunity for us to help you. Okay. And so the question I first ask them though is what would take you to an eight? What would take you to a nine? And in most cases, they don't know. Right. And so they're like, Well, we've tried this, we've tried we've done it, we've done retreats, we've done this, we've done that. And so what I kind of lead them to is that this is a process and here's how it takes three things to manage any situation. And if any one of the three are missing, you're, you're screwed. You're, you are good luck. I wish you the best. It's going to end in, in trauma, drama or chaos. The first thing is you have to be on the same page. And if you don't understand how to get on the same page, that's the disconnect. So if you think your people are headed south and they're actually headed west, there is going to be drama. There's going to be a culture crush. Okay. Mm -hmm. The second thing is you have to understand the style of your people so that you can communicate in a way they will hear. So if you don't understand their personality styles and how they're wired and understand that this conversation should happen in a way that speaks their language, not just your language. Sure. It may have to be a combination of both. And the third thing is you need a process or a path for building trusted leadership. And if you don't have that, then, then you go find that. You don't have to get it from me. There's a lot of people that teach leadership. There's a lot of people that give you plans, but I know ours works and it works really, really well. But if you don't have that, then I, then, so I just ask you, how are you doing in those three areas? Sure. And in most cases, Two out of three or three out of three are not good. Right. And so that's where we say that that will be kind of the difference maker. I had a, um, a surgery center with about 23 docs. It was an orthopedic place, orthopedic surgery uh, center. And they had law, they had a, a $1.2 million turnover problem. Mm -hmm. So they were losing nurses that they, they were 60 grand a clip that they were training and putting them into play. And they brought me in because the nurses couldn't understand how to work with these doctors. These doctors were, they had lots of nicknames for them and they were not very pretty. Just the communication and the disconnect in the surgeries were not good. It was not healthy. It was a hostile environment. They had a lot of claims against the doctors and again, high turnover because the nurses were tired of being abused. And so I said to them, I said, well, are your doctors willing to be trained? And they said, no, they don't think they're the problem. I said, okay, that's fine. I mean, at the end of the day, I, I, I can't fix, you know, when the student's not ready, sure. even if the teacher is there, I said, but what we could do is we could educate your nurses on understanding the style of the doctor so they can at least understand the why behind the what, the what is prompting this behavior and then give them some tools for diminishing the drama when the attack comes. 
And we were able within a year, we, we spent a year with this group. We were, were able to reduce their turnover to the point where it was costing them $60,000 instead of the $1.2 million. Wow. They were losing two, two, three nurses a year instead of 20 to 30 nurses a year. And all of a sudden they're like, what, how did this, why did this work so well? And I said, because once people understand that how people were wired in their communication style, a lot of times they can step back from taking things personal or understanding when the emotion hits, it's always driven by what's energizing them. So for like a high red personality, results are everything. If they're not getting the results, it's anger. So just like with you and your son, when you were not getting what you wanted from him, instant emotion is anger. And people are spending time trying to stop the anger. And I'm like, you're focused on the wrong thing. If you'll just figure out how to give them a result, the anger will diminish immediately. Sure. Immediately. And so what we were able to do with that staff is begin to help them. We, we profiled all the docs. We shared their profile with everybody. And we said, okay, this is what will curb the emotion. If you will focus on this with this doctor and that with that doctor, you'll begin to curb the emotion that's driven because they're not getting what they need in the moment. And it was life-changing for them because they, they got to see their docs in a different light. And, and frankly, I'll give the docs some credits. They started waking up to seeing this and we had about a third of the staff come back and say, hey, can, could you come in and do a training at our board meeting with all of our docs there? We're going to force them to hear this because whatever you're doing is working. And so that's how this could make a difference in companies. That's what you, you picked off my question. That's what I was going to end. You know, a lot of people would have just gone right after the docs. Correct. Whether they wanted to be trained or learn or not, they would go right after them. If they're the problem, that's why the nurses hate them. That's why they're leaving. And ultimately, they started to wake up to this change in thinking and started to look inward, right? How can we help this situation? Because clearly the nurses have changed their thinking and their approach to us. Sure. That is such an unusual approach, right? Non-traditional. Non-traditional. There, there are, <laughs> by the way, there are people who would say, well, why did you go to the victims and change them versus the cause? Well, at the end of the day, this was a communication problem. Yeah. And there's two sides, two sides to both problem to that problem. Well, and the fact that these 18 doctors are we're all owners, right? Like, see, see, when their names on the door, that's a lot different than when they're employees, right? Right. And and so that we had to take that approach here because the owners weren't open to making. They didn't think they were the problem. So what we had to do is kind of show them they were the problem in a in a in a different manner, and it it worked. Wow, that is that's truly non traditional because a lot of people would have balked at that approach. And the the ultimate thing is, do you want this problem solved? Because here's the approach we need to take. I'll tell you what was so funny about the way I got hired with that group is I was working with the HR per, a manager there and she said, Hey, our CEO would like to meet you. I can't really sign off on this until he, you know, gives you, you know, check mark. And I said, okay, no problem. So I go into a meeting and the CEO walks in and, you know, he's got a lot of initials after his name. You know, he's a doctor, a PhD. He's from the corporate world. He came from Procter and Gamble. And he has no medical doctor. He's just a good CEO. So he walks in and he says, hey, so I've heard a lot of good things about you. One of our docs re- referred you and recommended you. And I said, yeah, thanks. And he said, what's your pedigree? And I kind of panicked mm. because I'm not a psychologist. I'm not a, I have no training whatsoever in psychology or counseling or even on the leadership development standpoint, everything we've built has been built off the street and so I said to him, I said, well, I have a, a bachelor of science degree in business and marketing from Ball State University with a minor in telecommunications. And I have 20 years. Well, at the time, it was like 16 years of experience on the street. And he literally looks at me and says, you're hired. And I just stepped back. I said, well, can we talk about that for a minute? And he said, yeah. He said, Here, here's what I want. I'm sick and tired of theory. Uh, I want somebody who's actually been in the trenches yeah. and understands how to work with people. Classroom doesn't work for me. Right. So you're hired. And he literally got up and walked out. And I looked at the HR person. And she said, well, I guess we're good to go. Wow. And I was a little blown away because I was expecting with all the initials after his name that he was going to sure. say, look, you're not really educated in the way that we need. And I, so it, that was a, that was really cool. Wow. That's, that's a great way to kind of sum up the discussion. And if anybody can take something away from this episode, it's the fact that you need to perhaps think non-traditionally about how to approach a problem like this. Right. And look at the whole situation and, and wonderful example. Paul, what's what's next for you as you build out paulcarp.com? What can we look for from new content and how do we and how do people find you? Great questions. And I thank you for teeing that up. I, I would say that this year's focus, we you know, we're doing a lot of online recording and a lot of online content 
content, giving it away through all the social media chapters and channels. One of the things that I was challenged by as we sat down and kind of planned out 2023, I've got a, a, a group of guys around me that breathe into me and build into me and they're a few chapters ahead of me. Their challenge for me was, look, you can't be everywhere. You're one guy. So I love the idea of being online, but where I think you have a humongous opportunity is helping the solopreneur, the guys who are one, two, three, you know, whether you're a landscaper or a plumber, you're, you're selling recruiting, whatever that may be, because your ability to help people self-discover that the process they may be using is losing people versus winning people in a, in a disproportionate manner. You, you could probably take that content and customize it to an individual versus a corporation very quickly and very affordably. So people could really learn how to serve people into a sale, so to speak. Sure. And so we have this whole serve process and methodology and we, we teach the process of, how, you know, how, there's three things you have to know when you're, when you're in that, when you're not only the guy doing the work, but you're also the guy that's selling, but you really, because a lot of people who start businesses don't know how to sell. Right. They're really good at their craft, but they're not great at selling. And so there's, there's really three things you have to know the people. So you understand how to communicate in a way that, that connects and you build trust quickly you have to know, know the process and we call that serve. It's a five-step model. And then the third thing is you have to know your numbers and knowing your numbers is not just knowing how much money you're making. It's knowing all the steps in the process and the conversion rates so that you know where to train, sure. you know where your gaps are. And so that I think is going to be our key focus for, for 2023 is creating a model where an individual might hear or see some training go, Hey, what is, who is this guy at paulcarp.com? And they go check that out. And it says, Hey, do you want to grow your business? Are you a solopreneur? click here. And, and really the model is going to be, we can either assess what you're currently doing, or you can just take on what we teach and apply it. And, you know, our average sales rep is up 35% within the first year in closing wow. because we teach a very, very straightforward process that sets you apart from traditional selling. And it's non-traditional. It, it, like if you were to go through the program, you would look back and go, oh my gosh, I was hurting myself and didn't even know sure. it. Now you've created a model that protects me so that I don't get screwed by the guy buying and stealing and lying and all of the things that salespeople hate about selling. So that's going to be our focus. And I'm, I'm hoping that it grows organically. We're not going to try to, you know, buy ads for it. We're, we're literally just hoping people catch a glimpse through things like this where they're like, hey, I don't know who this guy is, but I want to know more. Sure. And so we'll talk to you. You can link in with me on LinkedIn. You can send me a DM and and we're pretty good about getting back and saying, Hey, how can we help? We're on a mission. And if we can make an impact, we'll do it. And if we can't, we will tell you, right. like, if you're not a fit for us, we will run faster than you will right. away. Right. So, well, yeah. I, I think the, the my takeaway here is there are a lot of people out there, quote unquote, doing sales, leadership training, et cetera. But the same reason this doctor said you're hired is <laughs> you, you've got some time on the street. There's a lot more depth to what you're bringing to the table. And through real world examples, most people can sit in that room and go, man, I haven't thought of it that way. Yeah. And very simple steps will change their, their, their approach to the problem they're trying to solve. So thanks for sharing that. We'll put the URLs in the show notes and make sure people can find you and, and get on board with the platform. Well, thanks for having me, man. This has been great. You know, one thing I will say, and you can edit this off if it doesn't make sense, but how can I help you? Like I, I, I every time, one of the things I've been working on in the last few years is, I don't ever want to leave a situation or an opportunity without saying, Hey, how can I help you? And so, like I said, well, I'm willing to talk on and, and give, give something back or give something in a way that would be helpful for you, whether it's in selling or life or wherever. I just, that is kind of a mantra for me to, to not stop without asking that question. Well, we will certainly talk about that as soon as I hit the stop button. <laughs> okay. Fair enough. I'm all in. Great, Paul. 100%. It's been awesome having you on the program and I hope everybody reaches out. I think there's a lot more here to the most of the programs I and leaders I talk to in the sales training marketplace and leadership. So uh, look up Paul and find out how he can help. Thanks so much. Thanks for checking out Eating Crow. Like and subscribe so you never miss a video.